Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Milk and Lean Podcast's Patreon channel. We are, uh, well, I am very excited to record an episode on a mutant character that has nothing to do with the X-Men, but who has stayed on the tip of my tongue and like in the back of my brain for many years. She is a uh, weirdly beloved favorite of mine. Last September, when I was at FlameCon, I was walking around and the guys from Rage Gear Studios, who I had on my show subsequently, uh, and who have done art for my wall subsequently, had a stack of uh, drawings they had done of some of their favorite characters. And there were some really obscure ones in there, like Gossamer from the New Mutants. And I flipped a page and there was Lightbright. And I was like, oh my God, it's Lightbright. And I was so happy to see her, which made her come back into my brain again. Now, recently, the incredible writer uh, Gregory Wright was on my show. We got to talk all about Silver Sable. Around the same time, I was talking to my friend Rohan about doing a Patreon episode uh, on Lightbright, and now here we are all together. So let me uh, let me welcome my friends Gregory Wright and Rohan Shuli back to the show. Let me uh, let me have you both introduce yourselves for people who may not be familiar with you. What are your gender pronouns? Where might mean where might me uh, we know you from? Uh, let's go, Greg, and then Rohan. Hey, my gender pronouns are you know he him, just kind of dull and boring. Uh, I was a former Marvel editor, uh, writer, color artist. I'm still doing color art. I work with um, special needs children now. Um, and I was the writer on Silver Sable and created a, a whole lot of characters that nobody else uh, seemed to be interested in creating. <laughs> <clears throat> and then Rohan. Hi, everyone. My name is Rohan Jolie. Uh, pronouns they, them, Sha and Sa. And um, you may know me as a writer. Um, I've got so many essays published on all over the gamut of the of the internet. Uh, I've published on Newsweek. I've also had some publications on Them magazine. Uh, most recently, one of my poems uh, was published on Anathema. It's a queer BIPOC Canadian zine out in Canada. <laughs> um, you also know me as the founder of the Blasian March. It is a Black Asian solidarity initiative and we build solidarity through one education on parallel experiences with racial injustice, as well as two mutual celebration. Rohan, I do not know your age, but it's such an impressive resume. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I want to open. Never tells. Uh, <laughs> well, a lady never asked. <laughs> uh, so I want to open today's show, and and this will be more for Gregory and I, at least for a second. Let's talk about the year 1993, which is the middle of your Silver Sable run. This is a wild time. In 1993, I was 15 years old. Uh, which puts me right in around ninth grade. I'm 44 now. So this is literally about three decades ago. I remember starting school every day with Anderson Cooper on, uh, I think it was called like square one. We would all gather in our homeroom. I was living in a small town in Idaho and Anderson Cooper would like update all of the kids on like what was happening around the world. This is before he became like crazy famous as a reporter, obviously. Uh, this is like pre-Iraq war, pre-9-11. The internet's barely like a glimmer in someone's eye. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a very different time. Uh, Gregory, tell me about you in 1993. You know, I, I was very busy. I, I think I was writing like four books and I was coloring about seven books. And, you know, I had I, I was living in 
I think I was living in in Arlington, Virginia at the time. Um, so, you know, what was fun about living near Washington, D.C. is it's it's Washington bullshit politic crap 24 hours a day. It's just everywhere you go, you, you know, all the, the dumbest stuff that you never hear when you don't live there. That's all you hear. <laughs> um, and so it was very frustrating. You know, it's like you you just you'd go out to dinner and you'd, the, you'd hear people just jabbering about stuff. And, you know, there were all kinds of people that worked in, on, on the Hill that would be at dinner and you just overhear some of the dumbest stuff you've ever heard. Um, so I, I, I've never, I was never terribly political about stuff really, but when I was living there, you know, the, the stupidity of it uh, did kind of get me going and thinking, you know, was as a writer, I should try to write some stuff that, that has something substantial to say about whatever is on my mind, you know, cause there's, you know, if, if, you know, if you've read Silver Sable, you know, I, I go after a whole lot of not so friendly issues that weren't being done in a lot of the comics. And I don't know how yeah, I got away with it, you know, uh, because I, I, and nothing, I was never told, no, you can't do that. And, you know, I mean, I didn't ask permission. I just <laughs> said, I'm going to create this character. Go ahead and, you know, and nobody stopped me. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, we, we addressed this in your main episode on my show, but you covered so much ground in Silver Sable and really to enjoy this title. And we didn't talk about this when we, when we did your initial interview, but you really have to ground yourself in the early nineties, which is a hard place to take yourself unless you live through it. Yeah. <laughs> you brought up, uh, you brought up so many diverse characters in this book, which is a mercenary organization with a very complicated female lead who is Eastern European. So that alone, when you start to put this, the cast of characters together and the way they interplay. But as, as mentioned, you talked about uh, televangelism and Christianity, you brought up Nazis and eugenics, you brought up <laughs> racial warfare, you brought up civil wars in Africa, you brought up uh, false pregnancies, uh, uh, pornography, uh, the AIDS epidemic, uh, queer characters, what it means to be an assassin, the, uh, the the cost of war. I mean, I could go on and on. The, the, your your book really covers a lot of impressive ground, and it's very clear to me. And and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this uh, as we're analyzing stories that are this bold from a, a place like 2023, where 30 years have passed and our understanding of things have changed. It's easy to go back, I think, in the early 90s and realize that we were informed about the world in a particular way, which, oh, yeah. which very likely influences the way that we tell our stories. Like uh, our, our understanding of police uh, brutality toward African-American people at this point is a very different conversation than oh, one, yeah. one we had about Rodney King. Uh, you oh, know, yeah, very 90s. Good. Yeah. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on that. The idea of writing about these complex topics uh, while being a, a consumer of American news media. Well, you know, what's interesting is it, it, the news wasn't as bad as it is today. You know, today, just, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, a non-biased, you know, story from what's going on is very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, so you have to really look. It wasn't as difficult back then, but at the same time, we didn't have all this the internet to just go looking for stuff. So I, you know, yeah, the I news would, today moves at such a speed. Yeah. I read a lot of books, you know. Um, I've never was never so well read as when I was writing these books because I read, you know, books after books. I I look look for real interviews with people, I um talk to people 
as much as I could who were involved in various parts of things. You know, I mean, I talked to, you know, when I, if I was going to write about cops, I talked to cops, you know, I talked to priests, I talked to rabbis. Um, I talked to my LBGQ friends, which, you know, back then they were just, you know, your gay friends or your trans friends or whatever. And I would say, well, how does this work for here? And, you know, and, you know, the, but the thing was strange for me is in a comic book world, you know, everybody's supposed to be like a caricature of, of something, but nobody that I knew was fit any of the way that you would normally write these different sort of characters in a comic book. They just didn't behave like that. They just behaved the same as, as I would, you know, so you, you, you know, you couldn't just write character and you didn't have sound or anything. So you couldn't just write a character that you wanted to be a particular way uh, and have them, it just sort of come out, uh, come off of the, the page. And if you weren't careful, the artist would draw them in such a way that they did. And then they would, they, they would start looking offensive um, and you wouldn't have any control over that. So if I decided I, I wanted to specifically have a gay character, I had to be careful that my artist didn't draw, you know, this weird version of, of a gay character that is nothing like anybody that I knew that was gay. Um, plus, you know, um, Marvel, you, you know, they, they didn't necessarily want you writing a, a, a gay character. They were very picky about who got to be gay and who got to write those characters. Some um, up until like the, the big North star coming out in which the person that wrote that totally messed that up as far as I'm concerned. Um, but you know, it, they're trying to handle stuff differently. So you had to kind of do that. So I just created characters and I just wrote them and you know, there was no need in the story to say this character was this or this character was that I just little planted little seeds. And then people started going, wait a minute, is this character? I'm like, yeah, well, why aren't they stating? And I said, it's not part of the story. Yeah. You know, when it's a part of the story, um that we can we'll we'll talk about it but it wasn't you know that wasn't what we were doing this is a story about a bunch of mercenaries you know i i wanted interesting characters and you know i wanted characters that i wanted to write so i i probably put more work into thinking about them than ever came out on the pages um so yeah i don't know if that answers the question no it really does and that's the and that's the one of the interesting things about the character of silver sable is because she's all about the mission she does absolutely have a, a moral code and she will oh, yeah. fight against injustice but for her a job is a job as long as you're paying so she might be hired to kidnap a baby in one issue and hired to defend a pop star in a second and then as we're going to talk about in a second today hired to deliver commodities to uh, refugees in a war-torn country in uh, in a next in the in the next uh, issue so the the complexity of the type of stories you can tell and the way that you can really explore those morals is a really interesting thing Rohan I know you are largely unfamiliar with the character of Silver Sable so picking up these issues from the 90s <laughs> as a young person in the 2020s I know you were focused specifically on Lightbright but what was it like for you to pick up some of these issues um well as someone who is born in the 90s <laughs> sorry to all the listeners here uh it's it's it, yeah. um for me what i definitely appreciated was as you're saying gregory a lot earlier how especially on that time period a lot of these characters were not given explicit representation as they are now so we had to do this in a more subtle way like um i think it was quintino as a character when we were referring to um, the HIV AIDS crisis um, 
or when we're thinking about people's like backgrounds regarding um you know all the tensions in eastern europe at the time period especially um for light bright for example like this actually kind of inspired me to do a lot of like background research because i was like oh this is really fascinating like what was happening in somalia at this time period <laughs> um and i was telling chad earlier i was like yeah no i had no idea there was like a full-on civil war like during the time of this publication in fact like a few months after um we were introduced to light bright is uh the battle of mogadishu um in somalia where literally that was the last part of the united states's military influence during the civil war um so i really enjoyed like all those like threads um that still make the piece very relevant to like modern readers for modern um comic book fans mm -hmm. um and actually i was really curious to understand like um yeah why why these particular crises why 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 place silver sable this character in somalia for example do you want to start there and then i'm going to talk about the introduction of light bright do you remember your uh your reasoning for choosing this particular conflict to involve uh silver sable in well you know what again you know as, as a writer, I just sort of absorbed everything around me that was going on, you know, whether it was in news stories or whatever. And I thought, hey, you know, we've never, nobody's done a story in Somalia. You know, hey, there's a crisis here that, you know, you know, I thought, well, you know, if we actually had superheroes, you know, they, people would get their food, you know. So, you know, it would make sense for somebody to hire somebody to go over there. And, oh, we can go over there. And since we're over there, you know what, I'll bet these countries actually have their own heroes and villains that we've never done stories about. Um, why don't I create some over there? And, you know, I needed a group. I, I like sort of bad guy groups that are kind of misunderstood. Um, so I got to, I could use sort of the politics, you know, where they're not necessarily bad guys, you know, but and since I made the mutants, you know, and it's like, oh, you're already persecuted around the world as mutants. So they're, they're mad about being persecuted as mutants. They're also mad about people trying to take over the country. Um, so it kind of gave them, you know, an actual motivation for what they're doing, which is not necessarily being bad guys um, to them. They're not bad guys. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of pulling. I, I when I went back and looked at this, I went, I don't know what I was thinking. I pulled weight. I pulled so many different things in to one little story. It's I'm shocked that you actually pulled it out of there because it's, you know, I it's so much. I'm like, what was I? And and it was during the Infinity Crusade as well. So we, we've got. I think that was also a part of it. I, I, there was, I can't remember. We had to loosely connect it with the goddess making people behave nicer than they would. And I don't know what I was thinking. Um, uh, you know, so, but it was, it was a lot, you know, I mean, I'm flipping through the issue and I'm going, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. Modern X-Men readers might be familiar with events that go on for a really long time. AXC is a recent one, Avengers versus X-Men, and like the inhuman story with the X-Men. Like it seems to go on a long, long time. In the 90s, there was a bunch of this stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Jim Starlin did the very popular and very famous uh, in Infinity War where Thanos snaps his fingers and half the population disappears. But then he did another Infinity sequel and another one after that. And then about three more after that. <laughs> one of them is the Infinity Crusade where there is a female, the feminine version of Adam Warlock, the messianic character who has like a devilish version of him called the Magus. Uh, the goddess 
uh, is basically doing this like everyone love each other and I will rule the world kind of thing. And it went on in so many titles. So I, many I had titles. to I had to I had to use it in every single thing I wrote. And I was like, <laughs> oh Infinity War is good. Infinity Crusade, there's a significant yeah, it just, drop. It was in too much everywhere. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't when whenever they would force you to like link into this stuff, you had to stop what you were doing, figure out how to link it in that worked with your title. Uh, and then you'd get that little little ribbon on the cover. And Infinity Crusade, you know, the goal of that, of course, was to try to get everybody that's reading all the Infinity Crusade stuff over there to pick up your d title. And then, oh, they'll they'll love this. And of course, by putting mutants in there, maybe I'll get some of the X-Men crowd. <laughs> we got to get some, get the numbers up. You know, but uh, yeah, nobody ever noticed that I had a bunch of mutants in there. So, you know, that, that didn't quite work out. I mean, you're the only one that, you know, this is, the, I mean, it's hilarious. Nobody's ever went, hey, what about light bright? I'm like, who? And I, I went, oh my God, yeah. I am here to delight and surprise you as many times as I can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Silver Sable and her mercenary pack, who we kind of broke apart in uh, Greg's episode on my podcast. So go back and listen. Let me do an introduction here. We are now in issues number 16 and 17 out of Greg's uh, 30 issue run. If I'm remembering right, it's 30 issues. 35. It's uh, 1993. And uh, Stephen Butler's on art. The caption as you open the book says, <clears throat> excuse me, Somalia, in a country torn apart by civil war, leaving its most pre precious commodity, its people starving in the streets. In another part of the universe, plans have been set in motion to bring about universal salvation in the form of an infinity crusade. That is why Silver Sable International has been hired to ensure shipments of food and medicine make it to their destination safely. So there's a couple interesting things already as we are talking. And Gregory is holding up some beautiful inked pages uh, from this issue. I love that you still have those. Um, the That's interesting the thing, white, yeah. I'm going to do this in one statement. And then Rohan, I'll let you reply if you want. Because my upbringing is as a white kid in America, but I am also a social worker. And it wasn't until I started taking classes that I realized my education as a white male in America was significantly lacking in a lot of areas of, uh, of, of things. So when I would hear about something like a civil war in Africa, I had a very kind of religious Republican upbringing way of thinking of like, oh, these are people who don't have what America has. And they're, they're so lucky that we're sending them shipments to help them. I had no awareness of genocide or American interference in other governments or arms deals, or like I had no knowledge probably even of what the United Nations was. And there's a lot of complexity as we make this, Marvel has a lot of these examples, right? We've taken World War II into Marvel. We've taken the Vietnam War into Marvel. This is an example. And one of the few that references uh, the Somalian civil war in, in Marvel's context. Uh, but again, our understanding of things has changed a lot. So we'll kind of just cover that in one sentence, but uh, or one paragraph. I mean, uh, Rohan, do you want to add anything to that before we jump to Lightbright specifically? Um, just like a few things. So I also had a very similar Catholic upbringing, not as conservative as other folks, but um, I definitely will agree I think this is also a, a blanket statement for most of the American just community in general, it's the US community in general, is that especially when it comes down to like to African politics, um, a lot of us just don't have enough education or information on the complexities 
right. of not just every country's um, politics, their internal politics, their pre-colonial politics. Um, this is something that this comic actually kind of touches on the surface of, because when I was doing my research on it, I was like, oh, this is actually a very, very complicated political situation that a lot of us just do not understand because we are also, even within the Black diaspora, we're also outsiders to this very particular uh, political crisis. Right. So, yeah. yeah. It's very complex. The uh, the history, the complication of what it takes to run a government and how other governments are influencing rebel factions that will then take over a government. But people are, there, there's a lot of stuff going on when we talk about a civil war in this way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very complicated issue. But let's jump in because I love that you did this story. I think it's bold. I think it's strong. Uh, and I love what Silver Sable represents. Uh, so Silver Sable and the Wild Pack are there handing out boxes of supplies to refugees and they have brought a new group of costumed operatives with them called the intruders uh, who include Sandman, Maneater, Finn, and Paladin. Now Gregor we talked about the intruders very briefly when you uh, came on my show but it sounds like there were plans to make this kind of another title at one point. Tell me a little bit about the intruders. Uh, well, that originally, I mean, it's funny when I went back and read the plot, I had called them the outlaws. I'm not quite sure why. Um, and I was told I had to change it. And so I came up with the intruders. But yeah, I mean, the intruders was actually uh, an approved, ready to go comic with that. I never even did a got to do a Bible for. I mean, it was just they 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 were always looking for new stuff. And they were like, oh, you know, we like what you're doing on Silver Sable. Well, we'll this this will be visual because you had Sandman um and stuff in it and so this was kind of me amping up to uh, you know do that title by introducing them and having them show up and and trying to like figure out how that team worked um and that that's where they were but you know that you know what's interesting is it's it's very sadly lacking a female on the team <laughs> um so that that had entered my mind that i needed to figure out a female that could go on the team. And I wanted somebody new. Um, it didn't, I wasn't necessarily when I wrote it thinking that it would be light bright. Um, Cause I really had no idea what any of the characters, these biogenes characters, these mutants, I had no idea what they were going to look like. I just, I wrote a little paragraph describing who they were and what they did. And Stephen Butler had come up with a, um, one of the, the, the young girl one um, on, you know, himself. Cause we had talked, but I passed it on and then Steven came up with the looks and I'm sure he sent me covers, you know, sketches of the characters. And, you know, when I look at it, I'm like, you know, the Leecher character looks nothing like I imagined him. I imagined this really hideously deformed elephant man sort of guy. And he's, you know, kind of deformed, but not like I, I really wanted something horrifying looking, you know, but then, you know, when he drew light bright, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the visual of her, I mean, it's a great costume. Uh, it's a great look, you know, she's got that, the, that wonderful hair. Um, and, and he, so, you know, once I got the visual of her, I, I had to say, oh, I need to do a little more work with her and try to use her a bit more because I thought, oh, she stands, you know, I mean, you responded to her visual right off the bat, you know, from, from what I understand. And, but, you know, of all of them, you know, she looks like a character, the, oh, this character looks like a character that, that might go someplace. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, Stephen came up. Compl- I didn't describe her at all, other than she was a, a you know a, a black woman uh, who had this power, and I didn't say whether she was you know good looking or not. And you know, she's you know she's amazing looking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a so, great costume, a great look. Um, one of the reasons, if you go back and read these issues, one of the reasons is a little bit of a challenge. I think the art is always in a hurry. I think, and Stephen's great, but. There are six members of the Wild Pack. There are four or five members of the Intruders. And then we're introducing several brand new superpowered characters. Yeah, so I don't know how he does lot it. Of, there's a lot of characters and not a lot of page room. But what you do with these characters is really cool. One of the things about the X-Men that bugs me the most is it's supposed to be a certain percentage of the overall population that is mutant. And of course, they are largely represented by white American mutants uh, more than anything. But there's this idea that there's a lot of mutants around the world. And Somalia, of course, would have its fair share of mutants. So we meet a team called the Biogenes, B-I-O hyphen G-E-N-E-S, which is... (laughs) <laughs> which sounds like a which sounds like some sort of like genetic research corporation <laughs> uh you know i i don't know what i was you know i again you know no well like the, the name Lightbright, that was not meant to be her name i just couldn't think of anything better but i that you know when i was a kid i desperately wanted that toy the, the light bright toy yes and and i never got it never so i, so, I my, my editor mark grunwald at marvel one year surprised me with a gift on my desk for my birthday and it was light bright um, oh my god so, so this whole light bright name has always just been important to me so i i just sort of jokingly named her that in in the plot and then i didn't think of anything better and she wound up being light bright and i was like oh, rohan do you know what a light bright is this is like a very eighties no. toy. So it's a, it's it's a it's a screen, an electric screen with a bunch of holes in it, and you have these different colored pegs that you put into the holes in different patterns, and you might have like a row of pink ones and like green and yellow, and then you plug it in, and the machine will light up all the lights so that it looks like a fancy, colorful design of what you made. So uh, that's what a light bright is. It's like a very very 1980s. I still have it. (laughs) (laughs) I had a light bright growing up. They're fantastic. Yeah, I I don't, you know, but yeah, so that's where that came from. I I wonder, that was one of my questions today is the association between the toy and the character. So the Biogenes, and I'll introduce these, these are all characters that could be living on Krakoa uh, in the modern era because they are mutants. There is Leecher, who is kind of a deformed, angry man who can influence other people's emotions, much like Empath or Wallflower can. Uh, There is Molly, M-A-L-I, which I presume is named after the location. Uh, but she has the power to shift between her child self and her adult self. And the adult self is like a very skilled combatant. The child self is uh, someone who can use a blowgun to like shoot paralytic darts out. She reminds me a little bit of the character Mannequin from Alpha Flight, for those that are familiar, the ability to kind of change from one form into another. And then there's a, a character named Transphaser who can change into an energy form and a rocky form and uh, project rocks at people. So there's a little bit of rock slide energy with this guy. The final member of the team then is, is Lightbright, uh, who has this long, incredible hair, like a golden jewel on her forehead. She's got black gloves all the way up to her shoulders. 
there's kind of a black bathing suit, but it's emblazoned with like a Captain Marvel-ish kind of yellow starburst that kind of covers her abdomen. She's got beaded necklaces wrapped around her waist. I guess I suppose they're not necklaces. Beaded cords wrapped around her waist, uh, bracelets on her wrists, golden cords around her legs. Uh, she can fly and emit light and heat. So again, power comparison. She reminds me of the character Strobe from the uh, Mutant Liberation Front, for those who know her. Uh, she glows. Her eyes glow. She's gorgeous. She gives me like a very Iman energy. Uh, if you guys know the supermodel Iman. Uh, uh, Rohan, what were your thoughts on seeing Lightbright uh, and, and the way she looks? That's funny you said my, my trans mother's name is Iman. So that's really funny. <laughs> um, you, know, you don't know you don't know who Iman is, do you? No. Oh, look oh. her up. Gorgeous. Oh, man. Gorgeous. gorgeous. Like, devastatingly like one gorgeous. of the most famous supermodels oh, ever, oh, ever, oh, ever. Oh, She's no. she was uh beautiful, beautiful. But oh. Oh, okay, sorry, I just Googled her. <laughs> yeah, isn't she amazing? <laughs> um okay, so for me. I, I definitely feel in this this panel where you first introduced the biogenes, I found really, really fascinating because um, like Chad was saying, like this is the first time we're now seeing, um, Greg is holding up the panel as well right now, but it's the first time we're seeing Beautiful. Um, almost like a, a Somali response to um, the Mutant Liberation Front, a mutant response to the X-Men or some other like, massive mutant team that is in its own perspective fighting for justice fighting for liberation um this is during the time period as well for folks who don't know when um briefly after the somali dictator um was actually um removed from government by rebels and the u.s government got involved and particularly because this particular dictator in the late 70s um, had USSR support, um, Mohammed Sayyid Bar, but then um, after a war in 77 to basically um, take back all land that he perceived to be indigenous to Somalia. Sure. Failed in that fight. The USSR um, removed the support of um, his government. Um, the Cuban mil military actually was deployed against the Somali military to stop this war. And so this Somali dictator bar aligns with the United States. So when he is um, removed from government, from power in the early 90s, right where this, this comic book takes place, um, the US government gets involved. And now there's a fight between the Somalis, the rebels, all this stuff. So that feeds a lot into this panel, which I really, really appreciated. Um, my favorite character, even though she has like a two second like cameo, apart from like bright on this panel, is this one um, woman who's wearing um, an afro, uh, an orange headband, has very like combative gear on. And side note, that headband pops up again a few issues down with Letitia, but that's for later. Um, <laughs> and I really, what struck me, what struck a chord with me was um when leecher is also kind of manipulating this character because she's also kind of like asking questions about um um this military activity um 
um, right, 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 even says that like, you need to remind this character Molly of like our cause. So you know, Leecher now engages in this manipulation of her. Yeah, yeah, it's which, very empath, like yeah, very empath, very much a manipulation of trauma, very much a, um, I guess I should say patriarchal kind of influence there. How patriarchy kind of uses trauma to its advantage for control. Sure. Um, yeah. Which I found really interesting. And then when she says death to the US invaders, I was like, on brand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help but notice the like parallel between, well, like I said, the parallel, the um, alliteration between invaders and intruders. Um, and that to me made this little panel very complicated politically. Um, because now we're seeing both sides. For me, how now the Wild Pack. The intruders, what they may think is charitable, is at the same time on the other end a part of this imperial invasion. So, well, and they and they have been hired to deliver right. these supplies. So yeah. the biogenes themselves are uh, not at least well, Leecher at least, who can manipulate other people. So we don't know how much their will is their own. But Leecher at least is very anti-American. We don't need their help. Uh, even he he does reference the Infinity Crusade here, like Gregory said. He said, "Don't be deceived by this recent calm that has enveloped the world." Uh, so they're they're ready to fight back. He's ready to manipulate Molly when she's having doubts at Lightbright's suggestion. Uh, so I'm going to cover these issues quickly, and then let's take some time to talk about it. So the Biogenes uh, take the war to the Wild Pack uh, and the, their allies, and there's a brief battle, and then Baron Wolfgang von fucking Strucker and Hydra <laughs> attack as part of this. Uh, Battlestar shields Lightbright from gunfire, and that helps her realize, Bat Battlestar being the very heroic Black Captain America character, uh, she realizes, oh, these are actually my allies. And then the Biogenes start working with the mercenary groups against Hydra, who's now involved, trying to exploit the stuff going on. Uh, so there's there's this idea that uh, we may have different causes, but we can unite to fight the greater evil, which is always the Nazis. <laughs> because once Hydra's there, we gotta we gotta team up to stop these guys. And then in the next issue, we see uh, Lightbright show up at the Simcarian. So uh, Silver Sable is from the country Simcaria. She shows up at the Simcarian Embassy in New York City, and she looks amazing in like black-heeled boots and leopard print skin-tight pants. This is her like very Iman moment right here. Uh, there's a gold coat with like ornate black and orange belt uh, folded across her waist, open cleavage, black gloves, like gorgeous jeweled necklace and earrings. Her hair is in braids down her back. Uh, she is kind of there with Battlestar, but Paladin flirts with her and she is not interested. Uh, and then she's kind of welcomed. So she has chosen to join this team of mercenaries and work with Silver Sable. Uh, so tell me, uh, Gregory, a little bit of your thoughts behind kind of revisiting this story and the, the Hydra of it all, if you'd like to talk about it. And then why Lightbright? Why did you keep working with this character? in a book that was kind of already overcrowded by other characters. So she ends up not getting a lot of airtime. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, when I flipped through the years, I'm like, it, it's like, how many different characters can I bring into this story at once? Because you bring Hydrin, and then suddenly I bring in Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. And, you know, it's like, I, I don't even, I, I'm curious as the character count. Um, I think it was literally, you know, seeing what Stephen did with the the drawing 
um, I said, I think this character should get utilized a bit more because she wasn't, there wasn't a lot written for her in the, the two issues with the biogenes um, to do, except for, you know, I, I planted the little seed with Battlestar. Um, uh, and then I said, oh, I'll have her join the intruders because I, you know, because I thought, you know, she looked great. So I thought, you know, I mean, it really was that, that sort of shallow. She looks great. Maybe she'd be good into the, uh, in the intruders books, but I got to, well, and I know, I know how much you like having characters play off each other. So bringing like a proud, strong African woman into it and seeing how she plays off of Crippler and Battlestar and Paladin. I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating thing already. Well, that's that, you know, I liked characters that were going to uh, collide as it were, you know, so, um, you know, yes, again, but again, she's a very strong character. I thought she would, you know, mesh well with Silver Sable. But I was like, well, how do I make sure she's not like Silver Sable? But I, I wanted to, I actually kind of based, I tried to base her personality off of this grandmother that I met. When, when my daughter was little, we had this birthday party and her, this, her parent, these parents left their kid at my house for like four hours after the party. <laughs> um, and she was, she was a black girl and, you know, um, her parents were, I don't know what was wrong with them, but you know, so like the next day it's, you know, we just, we just took care of her. Nice kid. So the next day I, I I'm, I'm working at school and I see this very regal older black woman walking towards me and I'm like, uh Oh, and, and she's kind of dragging the mom of this girl behind her. I'm like, uh Oh, um, she comes over to me, you know, and in, in the most, you know, regal sort of way, thanked me for taking such good care of her granddaughter when her daughter obviously was derelict. I mean, she just tore her poor daughter apart in front of me. But, you know, it was this sort of regal and she was dressed so nicely. Um, I, but it just stuck in my head. Um, this very proud, you know, regal woman. Uh, and and I kind of based <laughs> Lightbright's personality off of the way that she spoke, uh, and she also had you know braids, <laughs> long gray uh, braids. I uh, I love the fashion of this character. I love uh, that she stands up for herself. That she is not interested in playing games. She's also a character who asks herself questions. We gotta when we're looking at these minor characters, we gotta read between the lines. She belongs to one mission until she sees something else. Uh, I kind of like this idea of her going on to uh, become a mercenary character. Like it's time for me to go do something for me. Uh, we don't know anything about her background, but it's a bold choice for uh, uh, for this character. And I think maybe she found uh, Battlestar a little bit hot, which who can blame her? <laughs> well, you know, that was kind of part of it. But, you know, I, I, I like characters that grow. I, I don't like, you know, one of the, the things when you write a character from Marvel, you don't necessarily get to have them grow. You know, they must always stay at this one place. You know, I hate using Spider-Man. I can't do anything interesting with him. At the time, you, you know, he was married to Mary Jane. It was the most irritating thing to have to write this stupid married Spider-Man guy. And, oh, but you have to bring Mary Jane into the store. I'm like, no. Um, or I could create my own character. So I could, I never got a chance to do a lot of stuff with her. But you know, like you said, you know, there's a lot of what was, what was her backstory? How did she get involved with these biogenes? What did, you know, how does she get connected? You know, we never got to explore any of that. Um, uh, but I, you know, I was intrigued enough by her to continue to use her until, you know, we were done with, you know, they canceled the book on us. So, but she so, would have gotten a lot more play in the intruders, but. 
So Lightbright uh, ends up becoming involved in the next big mission, which is the mercenaries getting involved in gang. I don't know the right phraseology here. Uh, in the 90s, they would have called these gang riots. They would have been referring to people living in the city who were uh, like tearing down businesses and committing crimes and looting things. It's very much similar to the way that the media handled the recent riots. Uh, frankly, <laughs> I don't know that the reporting on this stuff was very different, but we do have a very different understanding now in our, and I'm, I'm trying to word all this carefully, in our ability as disenfranchised populations to rise up and to fight back. It's Stonewall and it's the suffragettes, and it's anyone who's ever had to stand up and fight and march and, and fight for change. So when we look at something like this uh, portrayed in a comic book form, and there are a lot of examples of this, we have a particular way often of seeing the quote unquote gangs or the people who are rioting or looting uh, uh, portrayed in a particular manner, speaking in a very inner city way, often portrayed as criminals or very uneducated. Now you do have some of that in your story here, Greg, but I think it's really beautifully balanced by uh, African-American characters and African characters who have a lot of different ways of relating to this type of world. Uh, Quentino I know is a person of color who comes from this place. He is HIV positive and he is also uh, a genius. Uh, we see the character Battlestar, the way he is played off of other uh, Black characters like Finn and Maneater and Lightbright. I, I think the most interesting thing part about uh, interesting part about seeing this story is the way that these different characters are portrayed and the fact that there's a wealth of types of characters. If it was just Captain America punching uh, quote unquote gangbangers in the street, that's a very different story. And we see that story done really often. Uh, so let me hear some of your commentary on that. And then if you're willing to take it from there and tell us who Letitia Arnold is. <laughs> uh, you know, I got very intrigued by the the Crips and the Bloods and the gang culture of L.A. at, at one point. So I, I had read a lot of books. I've read a lot of biographies of ex-gang members. I talked to a few ex-gang members. Uh, I I was at that time, you know, I had listened to a lot of that, the early rap music um, back before it, it, it turned crap. Um, and the early rap music was really poetry from the street. There was a lot of, of messaging um, by people who did not have a voice before. Um, and I was really trying to listen to it. And I was really trying to understand it. And, you know, fortunately for me, one of my best friends was Dwayne McDuffie. Um, uh, who you may know from Miles and created Milestone Comics and stuff, but he he and I discussed a lot of this this stuff um, because we were both writing a lot of stuff. And you know he would go on in in at Milestone they they had uh, gang stuff in Milestone which they did so much better than what I did. Um, but I was so fascinated by it, I, I wanted to do a story. And when I went to do the story, the first thing that I said is okay. I have to make all of these characters very diverse. They cannot just be those gangbangers that uh, everybody sees, you know, so they're, you know, they're, and I, you know, Letitia is not really, she's not a bad guy character, really. You know, they're, they're trying to accomplish something. Uh, and unfortunately the way things they would have to accomplish stuff is, is with street justice and 
stuff like that. So, you know, I was trying to portray it, you know, very gray, I guess, you know, where you, if anything, I wanted you to look at it and say, you know what, what we're seeing on the news isn't exactly how it should be. Um, you know, and it, it was tough because again, it's a comic book. So your intent and how it plays, you can't, up until somebody reads it and comes back at you, um, you really don't know. But I, you know, I, I kept having Dwayne read it. I'm like, okay, am I, please tell me I'm not being offensive. Please tell me I didn't go over the top with this, you know, and all of the dialogue is actual dialogue that I, I, I stole um, from, from the books and from some music and interviews with various people. So I knew that people do talk like this. Um, but when I read it now, I get a little cringy because it just, I don't know, somehow it coming out of the, this characters on a comic book page doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real. You know, it's like, I felt like I should have dialed that back a little bit. Um, it didn't feel real, but that was the thing I, I was trying to, again, it was like, I, I, I decided I like this sort of complex world and I want to see what, what would happen, um, in there. And I also wanted to connect to, back to, you know, Contino's, uh, you know, history, Right. Uh, you know, which again, you know, he was like the smart guy, you know, that and he got out um, and there was a lot of that. I mean, Boys in the Hood was a very popular movie, I think, around sure. that time. I was actually going to bring uh, that up. And yeah. I love I love Boys in the Hood. And, you know, watching that movie, you know, it's it's again, it's very heartbreaking, you know, when, you know, like there's a, a scene where Lawrence Fishburne's character takes the boys out and he says, we got to stop being afraid of our own people. Um, and that stuck with me because it never occurred to me that people would be afraid of of their own you know people um but you know there's again within all the various communities you know not everybody doesn't get along you know that's ridiculous you know yeah yeah um, so yeah so it was it's again i you know that's me i, I want to let me go tackle this complex thing you know let let the white guy go out there and do this story about all the uh, but you know i never got a backlash on it um thankfully I, I was specifically going to ask if you ran all this by Dwayne. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we talked about writer. it because I, you know, I wanted, I was trying to make sure that I didn't accidentally do something stupid, you know, because I, I think of, you know, when I, I think I told, I told you the story about, you know, Battlestar's original name was Bucky, um, and Dwayne thought that my that Mark Grunewald, who wrote the character, must be some kind of a racist because you don't call a black man Bucky, uh, and I was like, why not? I, had no, I didn't realize, I didn't understand it. And I goes, I can tell you this, Mark did not do that. So I made Dwayne explain to Mark what was going on. And Mark was horrified because that what, you know, he was trying to have another good character, you know, a good black character that could do. So Dwayne actually helped Mark write a scene with Battlestar. So the Battlestar changed his name from Bucky to Battlestar. And, and the realization was that the character, he didn't really understand the meaning of the name either. Um, which made it sort of interesting. So Battlestar was, has always been this, you know, he's not, you know, completely aware of, of black culture as me, as like you would see it in LA or, you know, elsewhere, he's just been doing his thing. Um, and it's different wherever you go. But I kept that in mind, you know, as I went, you know, is people are different, you know, and people are people, you know, and, so, and not everybody's, you know, just because you're part of a gang doesn't mean you're, you know, this was the choice you had at the time. I I love my ability to ask you really hard questions, but <laughs> uh, it's, it's tough. To, you know, you know, I don't well, know how I, I did all this stuff back then. You know, it's uh, it's bold and it really stands out as a bold '90s story. Lightbright during all of this gets involved in the conflict when 
some some of the uh, rioters very inappropriately inappropriately flirt with her, and she's got to create like an energy shield to block it. And she notes, and this is an interesting piece for her character and great writing. She says, the fighting here is worse than in my native Somalia. My name is Lightbright, and though I could end your lives as easily as you seem to end others, I seek only to bring you peace. It seems that such rational concepts are lost to you, so I must show you the error of your ways. And these are themes that we've seen explored in like the first Black Panther movie, as an example, yeah. where you see African, uh, African characters coming to America and referencing what racial injustice like is like here. Uh, uh, before we get to Letitia Arnold, who I want to cover briefly, <laughs> um, Rohan, tell me your thoughts on this, uh, on this conversation and on this story uh, that we've been talking about. Um, come on, go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I definitely will say thank you for making sure that Battlestar was not named Bucky. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't make sure. Well, no, that, that was Dwayne. Well, Dwayne. Okay. Thank you, Dwayne. Shout out to Dwayne. For folks who do not know, um, Bucky refers to a slavery time phrase called breaking in the buck which is if a black male slave was considered unruly, they would be physically beaten in front of other slaves. Um, in some parts of the Caribbean, this also included sexual violence from slave masters. So um, I think that would have been a very interesting conversation had that name flown out. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I also have to bring up this really interesting channel on page 14 of issue 21. Um, so that the entire issue and we're now where we're in Los Angeles and um, the wild pack, the intruders are trying to sort of break up this violence um, as these gangs, these groups of people are taking over police precincts. There's actually a moment where a black cop um, suggests that they will start shooting these people. Um, <clears throat> Which, given current news, um, I was I was distinctly reminded of a quote from James Baldwin, um, which I'll try to paraphrase because it's a long quote. Um, actually, I'll read the whole thing. Um, he said, "Black policemen were another matter. We used to say, if you just must call a policeman, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you." He knew far more about you than a white policeman um, could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform, whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that though he was black, he was not black like you. And that definitely um, reminds me of just how deeply complicated internal um, politics within the black community are. Um, whether it's competition for agency within patriarchy, whether it is uh, trauma-informed violence, um, that piece definitely stuck out to me. Um, for me, I also kind of gravitated around um, Lightbright's line about <laughs> why violence in Somalia isn't as bad as violence here. And I would just love to hear more of your thoughts, Gregory, around... Um, I guess Lightbright's kind of role in that scene. Like, you know, it's, again, it's, the, the gang violence, 
yeah, you know, is a very different thing than what she was than I guess it's trying to show the violence is not just violence. It's different no matter where you go. And for her, she's kind of looking at what to her looks kind of like a community at war with itself um, instead of a, a community where, you know, where she is, it's outside people that are not like them coming after them. You know, like people coming, you know, non-mutants coming after mutants. You know, you're not you're not mutants against mutants, you know, or, yeah. you know, whether it's America or this other government taking over your country where here, you know, you you basically got, you know, they're they're very similar. They're, you know, the gang scene They're you know, these are basically the same kind of people, but they're they're fighting over turf. They're fighting over whatever. Um, and I don't think she can grasp that sort of a, a situation. You know, um, it's that, you know, this is very alien to her. Um, mm -hmm. She'd rather break them up and try to get, you know, she'd rather kind of, you know, get them to calm down than just wipe them out. You know, she could have just wiped them out. You know I mean? That's the thing, you know, superheroes come in, they could just wipe all this stuff out, but that's really not the goal. Um, so I, I guess that's what it was. I, I'm listening to the, the James Baldwin quote that you're doing. I'm going, man, I, I wish I had had that in my head when I was doing this because that, that would have, it would have changed the story, but it would have been it would have really informed me, you know, because most the 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 writer that I had in my head mostly was uh, W. B. Du Bois, um, okay, yeah, yeah, that uh, Dwayne had introduced me to and made me read all this stuff, and uh, then we discussed it. Um, well, because it's you know you've got to get in the heads of the different types of people and why people are thinking, especially if you're going to do political stuff. Everybody, you know, it's like I I grew up with a very you know much like Chad this sort of white version of history um and even you know now i'm constantly learning stuff that just wasn't taught and it's not really being taught in the schools you know when you know suddenly you this movie about you know these black mathematicians who were basically the reason we got to go to the moon how did i not know any of this when i was a, i was a space geek i i want you know these things are just not taught um, so you do need to read, you know, I, they, we do need to read a lot of this material, um, you know, and I, I love James Baldwin stuff, but, you know, at the time I, I hadn't read much of it, um, yeah. but I'm like, God, you know, you know, I could go, you know, now I've read stuff. I can go back like, oh, this would have been so useful at the, at the time, <laughs> you know, and you wonder what would he have thought of right. this kind of stuff that's going on, you know, it's interesting. So uh, again, the idea of these different complex characters coming from different places, and this kind of follows up on your uh, your uh, quote from James Baldwin as well, Rohan. Uh, James Baldwin, by the way, top three of my personal heroes of all time. I love almost everything he's ever written. Uh, there's a character in this named Letitia as well. You get, uh, we learned that there's a there's a bad guy named Justin Hammer. And again, it's similar, it's similar to the Somalia story in that there's always a bigger, worse evil out there. Justin Hammer is a white billionaire bad guy who's like a weapons dealer. And he has hired some local people who are black, including Letitia, uh, who is a, uh, a very uh, strong-willed, outspoken black woman. <laughs> that's, a, that's how I'll describe her. Uh, but she's taking payment in order to propagate the violence and like lower property values in the area. Hammer sends in a bunch of, uh, of armored operatives who are all supervillains from other comic books. Uh, at Afterburner, Beetle, Blacklash, Blizzard, Boomerang, Cyclops, and Spymaster are all here. 
uh, and and there's a there's a war that breaks out. Now there there is tropes, and I'll let people Google this on their own if they'd like. There's tropes about the idea of the welfare queen, which are pretty offensive in history. And Letitia has the danger of being portrayed that way. Uh, if you are familiar with that concept, it, there's also uh, a lot to be said. Of, well, Rohan, let me ask for your opinions on the character Letitia quickly. What did you think of her? You know, I I found myself empathizing a lot with Letitia. Um, um, there's this really wonderful film. This also kind of reminded me of. I think it's called um, "Set It Off" with Queen Latifah. Remember the name of the film? It's about four black women who are just really being screwed over by the system to the point in which they wind up robbing banks um, to kind of like survive. Um, I, I highly recommend the film. It's I, I love it. There's a wonderful uh, queer representation, which also I find very bold for its time period, especially thinking about queer phobia in the Black community. Um, but I one thing I, I really liked about Letitia is when she talks about sacrifice. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people kind of have to go through in these situations. And when she's fighting, um, oh, I'm blanking her name. I am so sleep deprived. I am so sorry. <laughs> when she's fighting Silver Sable and talking about sacrifice, I really, really latched onto that because her affiliation with the rich white man, Justin, was definitely her sacrifice for this sort of like output, this, this sort of like push for uh, really a political statement. Um, you know, they took over a police precinct in Beverly Hills and Beverly Hills, um, so for folks who don't know, this this was, this was this issue was published about two years after the LA uprisings, um, which was a very difficult, um, tense conflict between black and Korean immigrant communities. Um, There's a lot of misunderstandings between them, lots of violence and the police actually did nothing to stop this uh, situation. They actually wound up forming barricades around Beverly Hills. So <laughs> this comic takes place two years later and here is a black community kind of taking over the police precinct in Beverly Hills. We found really, I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> I, 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 had a, a little, I had a little giggle. I was like, that would have been really just a funny, just ha ha. But, Marvel. Um, yeah. I Marvel has a famous story. Look up the Sons of the Serpent sometimes. This is a 70s story. I think there's one in the 60s as well. I think this happens twice, if not three times, where there is a group of anti-Black racists and the heroes are fighting them. And then at the end, it turns out the leader of the white racists is a Black man who's trying to profit off of racism. And that's a story that's done by Marvel more than once. It's, uh, it's pretty uncomfortable unless you see, like Gregor has done here, a number of different Black characters with di uh, different motivations. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is a smart story. Okay, I'm going to cover Silver Sable uh, appearances of Light Bright very quickly. There is a moment where she's fighting supervillains and she comments on how she's tired of getting gawked at, which is, which is fantastic. She's gorgeous. Uh, in Silver Sable 20, she is at a party at the Simcarian Embassy. She is gorgeous again, head to toe black, bright red scarf and shirt, gorgeous gold necklaces, 
black hood over her hair. Uh, they really did beautiful stuff with her fashion. Uh, she she rebuffs Crippler uh, when he flirts with her. Uh, she shows up in like one panel each in Silver Sable 25. Oh, Crippler. And... <laughs> oh, goodness. I always... <laughs> This is a problem I had at our show. Oh man. I mixed no, up it's the other asshole. <laughs> yes. My apologies for mixing those two characters up. No, it's the racist. Yes. Asshole one, you know, asshole. Yeah, two. he's like, Great. well, you know, but she's pretty, you know, I'll I'll make an exception, you know, kind of. And I, I actually I actually took that from a, a a guy I knew who was, you know, kind of racist. And yet, you know, it, it was but if you were a, a good looking black girl, you know that didn't it didn't apply and i thought well that's that's kind of messed up you know it's like how can you you know it's like you know i i don't know but i took that from a, a thing i saw in a bar and i was like what the hell i uh, cannot tell you how many times i have heard that myself so <laughs> when i heard him say that i was like i hope he gets his face beat but hey look at that oh i i i yeah, you know that's what i <laughs> I, waited until I got larry arnold in there and from from there and then you know right away he, he just clocks him I was waiting to do that scene. <laughs> Thank you. So, so Lightbright is gone after this. The uh, the other series never happened. The book was canceled. And she, like many of these characters, kind of fades into obscurity. The Wild Pack comes back a few times, but she's not around yeah. until 2006. And we're going to cover this part very briefly. Civil War is a storyline that was hero versus hero in the Americas. One side pro-registration, the other not. They are fighting in the streets, uh, the pro-government and the anti-government. And this is a time where a ton of characters got to make very brief appearances. Uh, they, uh, they were pulling deep <laughs> from the annals of Marvel as they, uh, they brought up different characters that could be cannon fodder or appear in these like big giant hero fight scenes. I could list like three dozen characters off the top of my head that make an appearance here that had not shown up in many, many years. And Lightbread is one of them. We see her in the title Civil War Frontline in a story by Paul Jenkins. Uh, she's also in Civil War number six and seven by Mark Millar. She's in kind of background scenes during the battles and you don't see a lot of her. But one special thing that happens with her here, there was a handbook style uh, book called Civil War Battle Damage Report, which I believe I wrote in. I think I was one of the contributors on that book. I know I was on the team during that time, uh, but there are little tiny clips uh, of multiple characters that appear with just like, here's where they appeared, here's what their powers are, here's what their names are. And a lot of characters received real names for the first time here. So I actually didn't put this in my notes. I'm assuming this is the first Gregory who will have heard of this. So Lightbright in this title was given the name, and I do not know who chose her name, of Obax Majid, O-B-A-X, last name M-A-J-I-D. And the name, the, nom the name Obax is of African descent and it means like delicate or beautiful like a flower. And the last name Majid is uh, Arabic in descent and it means like noble or magnificent or generous. Uh, so Obax Majid is the name they granted light bright. Gregory, what are your thoughts on this? I, I really like it, you know, and when I, I cause I, it was in your notes, but when I saw that I thought, I said, did I come up with that name? That name's really good. You know, so I, <laughs> I went back and read and I went, Oh, somebody else came up with that name. I'm like, that's really good. But then I start thinking, well, wait a minute. I frequently would get called by people doing the, the games or for, that were doing Marvel Universe and ask me for details on characters that, that the, there weren't any details in the book. So I would come up with 
new stuff. So I thought, I wonder if that was one of the conversations. So I went through all, all my, um, I, I keep, you know, all the emails that I, I send to people to see if, you know, whatever I, some new material I gave, but it wasn't me. So uh, I thought it was, that's a great name. I was like, wow, that's really good. I, w- I wish I could claim credit for that name. And I was like, why didn't I give her a name? Like, oh, that's right. Cause she was only in about eight panels and entire uh, thing, you know, Stephen really deserves all, all the credit for everything you really like about her. Uh, Cause he did all of that design stuff. And I, I just, you know, came up with the preachy dialogue for Stephen <laughs> is a great artist, but you are also a great writer, my friend. I'm really yeah. I, from that first conversation. I hope you know how much I uh, enjoy this character. And uh, you did something really kind for me without me asking uh, Gregory recently read my memoir, Gay Mormon Dad, and put up a really nice public review about it. That was such a, a, an honor to see from someone that I respect so much. Oh, it was, um, it was you know, again, as a writer, you, you want to read stuff about, you know, I don't know what it's like to be Mormon. That's fascinating to me. You know, my God, being a gay Mormon and, you know, all, I mean, it's a very personal, I mean, that you really talk about laying yourself bare for everyone to see. I was like, my God, how ballsy. I get uh, that. I get that feedback a lot, but for everything I included, there's more I leave out. <laughs> I'm sure, well, I got this sense there was a lot more, but you know, but it was fascinating, you know, because I, you know, I've always wanted. There's lots of characters I wanted to write. I, you know, I wanted to write some more ultra-religious characters and stuff, but you got to be very careful because oh, I can't write one. I'm gonna have to write ten so that it doesn't look like I'm picking on one here. So you know, you know, and, and Mormons are something that are fascinating, you know, because, you know, I was a big Osmond fan. So that was that, you know, and then, you know, I, I love the Book of Mormon, you know, it's, and, you know, it's, you know, and, you know, I, I love that the Mormon church, they, um, they took out ads in the playbills saying, you know, that say the book is better um, in, in the Book of Mormon, because so apparently the Mormon religion got a huge influx of people wanting to be Mormons, because of the Book of Mormon, I thought, wow, that's way more people. Intriguing. Way more people have left because of that musical than have joined. <laughs> <I promise. laughs> you know, but it's fast because you don't really know the inner workings of a particular religion. You know, um, you know, but you know, the Book of Mormon. You go, is it really this? And so I read a bunch of stuff, and I went, oh, I see it. They're they're really stretching it. Um, but yeah, you know, but it was fascinating to read. You know, the book. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't imagine what it was like. You know, trying to you know tamper yourself down and then figuring it out and then you're you know wondering how's your family going to react to this and it's like oh my god i was you know i felt i just felt so much empathy you know for you because the way you wrote you really did a great job writing it so you really could kind of put yourself in your shoes at those moments um and i was i just you know so i was like wow this is great material to read as a writer Telling my story in that way was uh, a, a huge professional accomplishment for me, but also a very healing journey. Owning my story, understanding myself in that capacity. Uh, and I'm actually working on adapting my memoir into a graphic novel currently. So uh, oh it, I, I, uh, it's, I've spent the last week working really actively on it and uh, was in a very emotional place, but it was really healing and healthy too. It was it was nice to go back and, and revisit. Well, I got the mushroom murders now, so I'm... Ooh. I, I'm planning to read it all in one go. The Mushroom uh, Murders for my long-term listeners is the comic book that I published in t- 2012. I'm actually really proud of it. Uh, take your time. It is not without flaw, but it's it's a pretty solid book. I, uh, I've i shared it with my kids multiple times. I yeah. uh, really enjoy it. A local group here in Utah recently did M- The Mushroom Murders, The Opera, which <laughs> was a thing that happened. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's um, it's weird. The stuff, you know, the places, you know, when when you're part of the comic industry, the the sort of people you meet and stuff, it's very interesting because, you know, when I worked at Marvel, you know, there was a lot of very closeted things happening, uh, and Marvel, you know, we, you really weren't to do certain types of material, or the comics code would get in the way, and I would do it anyway. Um, but what was interesting is when I would talk to people, it was you know. Asking questions of people who belong to a community that are not is not yours can be very strange because they look at you like what 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 you know why would you ask such a dumbass question you know sure. like I don't know sure. how this works and you know you know it's like it's I remember you know Dwayne and I would talk and I was like you know I don't want to write these black characters inappropriate he goes well just write them with the same damn dialogue he goes you know not everybody who's black talks you know this way or this way and I went ah. You know, because, you know, but in a comic book, you know, I'm sure, you know, if you've read comic books and suddenly you got this black character and they're speaking this weird jivey stuff that nobody has ever, you know, spoken. And, you know, you know, when Luke Cage used to say sweet Christmas, you know, that's not a part of anything, but it comes from some book, some some pulp fiction, some pulpy book that somebody wrote uh, years ago with a black character. They just happened to say it once and you can't say, you know, goddamn or whatever. So they came up with a catchphrase and that happened to be. The catchphrase yeah. um so it was actually written by a black author for a black character in some book you know that you know was you know a dime novel um you know and, and Dwayne found that stuff out but uh, if you ever find some of uh the interviews Dwayne did where he talks about comics and race and stuff it's just fascinating stuff because he he had to go through all this kind of stuff you know whereas I could write anything I wanted nobody blinked the second Dwayne wanted to write more than a couple of black characters, he had an agenda. Sure. But Dwayne had an agenda. His agenda was to try to write some intelligent comics. Yeah. You know, but he wasn't trying to, you know, do that. But they would, you know, like, go, oh, they hired him to do Justice League. They created a black Justice League. And then they went, let's get Dwayne to write that. So people said, look, Dwayne's trying to turn all the, the Justice League black. No, he was hired to write that particular book. And then they did it with the Fantastic Four. Sure. You know, yeah. again, to, you know, he didn't. That wasn't him, but this is the kind of stuff that would go on is they would, there was a lot of this sort of pandering kind of stuff. And I, I tried not to do that with all this different characters that I wrote. I, I hope I, I succeeded. You know, my intent was pure, um, but I'm sure, you know, I look at some of it now and I go, oh boy, you know, how did that uh, <laughs> go off? And yes, Letitia uh, was, I, I, I had um, 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 Queen Latifah in mind. When when I I came up with Letitia because I've I have been uh, obsessed with Queen Latifah since her early days when she was a teenage rapper, um, and then you know now I mean she she's done everything, um, you know she's you know she gone, went from rap to hip hop to singing all kinds of stuff to being in musicals to acting to having a talk show to being an I mean what hasn't this woman done? Um, I never thought she was like a gangbanger, but um, but yeah I kind of based you know the early, that early sort of uh, tougher. Queen Latifah was what I was thinking of with, and I, but I wasn't going to name the character Latifah. Do you want to hear, uh, this is, this is inappropriate and rated R, but I'm going to share. I recently learned in a weird conversation with some friends that there is a porn star named Teen Laquifa. <laughs> <Isn't>... <laughs> of course. 
that's, that's such a random uh, piece of trivia. Uh, I laughed really hard because it's so inappropriate. But it, it also came funny, out, honey. You know. like, <laughs> all right, honey, make your coin. I am mad at you, girl. Yeah, you go for it. Uh, no, well, okay. it's like you know, if you if you ever go to you know to see an, a drag performance, you know, some of the names that some people come up with, you know, as their various alter egos are are just amazing and hilarious. Oh, there's some there's some funny ones out there. Uh, absolutely. Okay, as we are wrapping up, let me just share. I am very fond of this character, Lightbright. I want her on Krakoa. I want her in a book. I think she's really interesting and unique, uh, and I hope to see her used. I think she's fondly remembered by more people than you think. Uh, I would love to hear any of your final thoughts. We're going to drop this out on the Patreon in uh, in mid to late February. So if you guys would like to plug anything as we're wrapping up, uh, you can time it for around then. Uh, Gray Malkin Lane, you can find Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. The next Patreon episode that's going to be released after this uh, is Gregory, you met my friend Amanda Martini. She oh, is yeah. in town here in Utah, and she's going to come to my house and record an episode on Madame Sanctity with me because she was. Is she going to dress up? She or? did that on my show already. We did a show okay. about Madame Sanctity and she dressed up, but we're going to do a character focused episode uh, to follow up because this is like the time travel daughter of the creator of the Sentinels. Uh, she's uh, she's a crazy character. The next episode that's going to come out after this on the main show is the trial of Kesar. So uh, give that one a listen to. We have a lot of conversation uh, uh, about this character. Uh, so as we are wrapping up, uh, same questions to you guys. Where can people find you online? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, let's go in the order of Gregory and then Rohan. Um, I'm you know I'm on Facebook. I'm easy to find. Um, you just you know uh, just Gregory Wright on Facebook. Uh, that's usually where I am. I'm also on Instagram. But uh, if you find me on Instagram, I think it's is it G Wright stuff on Instagram? Yes, that that's one? correct. Is that what it is? Uh, mostly you'll find me posting pictures of food because um, I I love to cook. Um, so that's mostly mostly food. Uh, I am on Twitter, but you know, it's like Gregory Wright 62, I think on Twitter, but I'm very rarely on Twitter. Twitter becomes a, a shit show of yeah. nasty people. And I, you know, I, I just, I just can't, you know, sometimes <laughs> I just like, no, I, I like to share fun stuff and positive stuff. I'm not really, I don't feel like fighting and talking politics on Completely that's where you can find me. Um, is and is know, there anything you want to plug? Um, you know, I'm currently working on a book called the, um, the Ghosts of uh, Matacumba Key uh, with Graham Nolan. Um, it's a sort of a detective story down in the Florida Keys involving um, ghosts. And, uh, you know, it's just a fun sort of comic uh, that I'm, I'm doing. The co I'm coloring that. Um, Graham uh, wrote it and, and, uh, and drew it. Or he's, he's writing and drawing it. You know, it's, it's in progress. So I've, I've been working on that. And uh, if, if you ever... You want something really neat uh we did uh something for uh, with aftershock called the girls of dimension 13 which is about this group of girls that uh, have these psychic powers and stuff and they wind up getting sucked into all these dimensions with demons and stuff and uh, brett blevins did the art and it's spectacular sort of crazy doctor strange weird worldy stuff um and it's probably my favorite thing i've actually colored because I got to do so many different styles of color with different art. Um, but the girls at Dimension 13 is a, a lot of fun. And again, you know, Brett Blevins is, you know, just he's such a phenomenal artist to, to get to work over. So that was really good. So, you know, I, I, that might be a little tricky to find because 
you know, the independent comics, they kind of come out and then they're gone. Um, but they, you know, hopefully they have, it's available someplace. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights, my friend. It's a, it's such an honor to have you back. Uh, and then uh, Rohan. Uh, sure, you can find me at Diary of a Firebird on all platforms. That's my Twitter and my Instagram and the title of my website. Um, a few shameless plugs on my end. Um, I'm not sure when in February this is dropping, but if it's after the 20, the 17th, um, cool. If it's before the 17th, um, you can catch me in person at the Creating Change Conference um, at the API Institute. Uh, we'll be discussing uh, police violence towards Asian Americans and how we in the Asian American community can uh, reimagine safety. Um, let's see, uh, also as a writer, um, keep an eye out on Asian American Writers Workshop. Um, I um, will be publishing a few articles through the Open Cities Fellowship that is specific to Asian American experiences in New York City. Um, on the organizing end, um, <laughs> April 29th, uh, we are holding at the Blasian March, our second annual Blasian March book fair. Um, this is an event where we give out free books from black and Asian writers as a means of building solidarity. Um, uh, we will also have events for the kids. We have coloring pages for children to learn about Black and Asian civil rights leaders. Um, we have performance hours. There's also a panel of Black, Asian, and mixed Blasian writers on how to build solidarity. Um, feel free to come by. We'll be live streaming it on our YouTube if you can't make it in person. And in the meantime, if you feel like supporting us, um, <laughs> we have a GoFundMe campaign going on right now to pay for the books, to um, pay for our artists and our speakers um may time we haven't fixed out a date yet but in may the blasian march will be in washington dc most likely last weekend of may and we'll be marching um in solidarity and advocating for affirmative action um june 10th we are having our third annual oh my god third annual black asian pride rally um we're celebrating black and asian lgbt community specifically with speakers revolving around climate justice. So check all that out on BlasianMarch.org. Um, Blasian March is also our Twitter and our Instagram names and Facebook on Blasian March. That's all. <laughs> I am so impressed with all you are doing. Uh, it's so yeah, great really? to see you both. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so poor though. Why am I so poor what though? What was I doing at your age? <laughs> Very impressive. Oh, thanks. Uh, okay, everybody. Gregory, thank you. Rohan, thank you. I will forever associate this character with the both of you. And uh, I can't wait for her big moment. All right, everybody. We will see you back here uh, next time on Gray Malkin Lane's Patreon. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.